Let me tell you a true story here uh, that's going to relate to our passage of Scripture. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 in just a minute. Uh, But uh, let me start with a true story. I want to tell you about a comedian, Shonda Pierce, who lives in Nashville. Uh, She was awarded um, with the... uh, I'm going to get this. I'm going to mess this up. She is the, the top certified solo female comedian in history. Uh, which is quite an award uh, to have received. Um, Several of her performances actually went platinum uh, when they were released on DVD, and she was invited to the presidential inaugural ball to perform there. Uh, She has a a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame as well. Uh, She's kind of a big deal. She she brings joy. She gives the gift of joy to people through uh, the gift of comedy. But her joy was forged in real darkness, She had a very troubling um, childhood and upbringing. She was uh, a preacher's kid, uh, but her home was not a happy place. It was very dysfunctional and abusive, and she tells different stories about it. There were times where she was, uh, the the family were were in their house, and their their father would be uh, threatening to take his own life. He'd be lying on the floor in the closet in the other room, wailing and crying with a a gun, uh, just terrifying uh, situation to be in as a young kid, and then the rest of the family sitting in the other room playing Monopoly during this, just very dysfunctional, very um, traumatic experiences that she had. She uh, was the middle child of of three sisters, and when her older sister was 20, she was killed in a car accident. And then, uh, I think it was 19 months after that, her youngest sister, or her younger sister, at the age of 15, was diagnosed with leukemia, and 21 months after that, passed away from her leukemia. And in between her sister's deaths, her parents got a divorce. Shonda talks very openly about the trauma and the pain of her childhood. She brings some redemption to it through her comedy, through the storytelling, and finds uh, redemption in it in that way. And, And really ministers to a lot of people, a lot of women also who uh, have similar stories to her, uh, who come to her performances. And uh, Shonda is a very strong Christian. She never lost her faith uh, during any of these trials. She married David, and they had two kids together. And early on, they decided she was you know, very gifted as, as a comedian, and she, she should pursue that. And so he stayed home with the kids as she went on the road. And uh, her career took off. God seemed to bless it, and it seemed to prosper, but it took a massive toll on them and on their family, and they, on the road, she began to really miss her kids, just desperately, just struggling with being gone for long periods of time and not seeing her children, and she fell into a clinical depression. So she would, before a performance, she'd be lying down, crying, un- you know, uncontrollably, inconsolably, and then her manager and her other work colleagues and friends would have to drag her onto stage, and she would uh, get up there, perform her, her comedy, make people laugh, but she couldn't feel the joy or the laughter at all. When her daughter was 15, uh, her daughter and her, uh, the, her father, uh, Shonda's husband, David, they formed a very strong bond. They went on some adventures together. So it wasn't all bad. There were some bad things happening, but it wasn't all bad. They formed this very strong bond, and they uh, hiked up four mountains together, ran two marathons together, very strong father-daughter bond. But as she became an adult and started her own family, she 
completely cut off Shonda and David from her life. She said that the family was too dysfunctional for her to cope with. The son, they remained close to their son. Their son disagreed with the sister's decision, didn't understand why she had to cut it off. He knew life wasn't perfect, but disagrees with it. But losing the relationship with their daughter and then also their grandchild in the, in, in the midst of all that was devastating. Shonda says it was like the ultimate rejection that you could ever experience, a child and grandchild being ripped out of your life, rejecting you, choosing to reject you in that way. And then when their son was old enough uh, to leave home, uh, you know, he graduates college, gets a job, he leaves home, and so David is left kind of without anything to do. He's by himself and desperately lonely. Shonda's on the road, the kids, they're empty nesters, and so David turned to alcohol. Hadn't drunk his whole life, but now in this season, became addicted to alcohol and to numb the pain, and it became a vicious cycle. It was so bad, he knew, he knew if I continue, I'm going to die. This is going to end my life. And then during this season, Shonda's mother became deathly ill, and it was all too much to cope with. And they decided to separate. He went to rehab, she went to stay with her mother. I think it was seven weeks, her mother slowly died. David and Shonda were separated for about 18 months, and he had a, a period of sobriety, and so they decided to get back together again, and Shonda thought, this is it, this is now our, our happily ever after. We're going to write our fairy tale story now at this stage in our lives. Everything's going to work out, it's going to be okay now, but secretly David fell back into drinking and hiding it. It was... Not a good situation. And one day, walking in the woods, he suffered a massive stroke. He had blood clots in both legs, both arms, and in his brain. And they rushed him into emergency surgery. And Shonda clung onto her husband in the hospital. For a woman who had experienced so much trauma and so much loss and tragedy in her life already, what would become of her husband, the one thing that seemed to have remained, that she could hold to, was now possibly being ripped away. Let me pause the story there. We'll get back to it. We'll, we'll look at the conclusion of it at the end of the sermon. But it, her story relates to our scripture today and what we're going to look at today. We're in, as I said, we're in week two of Christmas in Chicago. The title of the sermon today is Joy. Joy. So let's pray and then we're going to read from Luke chapter two. Lord, we need you. Lord, this world is full of heart, heartache and hardship and trouble, tragedy, and loss. And Lord, the only hope we have is you. So I pray you would teach us true joy and how to find joy in you. Lord, that our hearts may be free of the grip of this world and fully dependent on you. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray they come into a relationship with you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke 2 verses 10 through 11, it says this, And when the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is God's word. So we've jumped into just a little segment here of the Christmas story, the angelic appearance, and the 
promise of this great joy through the coming of Jesus, the Savior of the world being born. Everybody wants joy, right? Everybody wants joy, and the way to a fulfilling life, what we mean by a fulfilling life, is a life that is enjoyable, a life full of enjoyment and fulfillment. And as a culture, what we've done is we have shortchanged ourselves, we have confused true joy with pleasure. So short-term gratification is kind of the commodity of our culture, and so we've confused that with a true sense of joy, and so what we've done is we've taken short-term gratifying things and we've amplified them. we found ways to now get them into everything. So we, we're hyper-stimulated as a society into things that gratify us in short bursts, but they make us absolutely miserable. So everything's filled with sugar or high fructose corn syrup, or we can get stimulants anywhere and everywhere, or you know, something like, you know, something good that God created like sex, to be in a certain context for, a certain, for certain purposes and reasons. Now, well, you can get any kind, any time. It doesn't matter. There's no limitations to these things. We've taken the boundaries off of all these things, but we're miserable because we think that fulfillment is found in gratification and pleasure, not in deeper, more substantial things. We have a quote here from an unknown source. Any second now, the quote from the unknown source says, Joy is a winsome magnet that draws people in because it is the one thing they do not have. It is the one thing they do not have. The promise in these verses that we read is not that Jesus gives you joy. The promise of Christmas, the promise to these shepherds, It's not that Jesus will give you joy. The promise is that he'll give you great joy. The greatest joy imaginable. See, human nature tends to, we tend to be very short-sighted, and we tend to hope in short-term things. Short-term things that that give us a, a quick return or a quick hit. And those things are not, capable of sustaining us in our lives. The only way to get long-term stable joy and stable fulfillment in life is to invest your hope and your, the search for your meaning in your life in something that is long-term. And, and the longest-term thing you can possibly imagine is God. He is uncreated. He's the most stable thing you could ever hope in. And so, there's two ways, whether in God or, or even without God, there's two ways that you can search for this joy. Either internally, privately, by yourself. You, you, you can, there are things you can do to, to, to grow a sense of joy in and of yourself, no matter your circumstances. That's one way. The other way is externally, is, is communally, through relationships, through other people. Those are the two ways. It's inside or outside. Now, there's positive ways of doing this, healthy ways of doing this, and there's very destructive ways of doing both. To be a well-rounded person... You have to have both, though. You have to find a way internally to find joy, but also externally find joy as well. God gives us both. And what's interesting is, in our own strength, with our own faculties, we actually can find quite a bit of joy in life without God. And you'll you'll, you'll encounter this. You'll find people who uh, uh, maybe they have a different religion or they... Uh, maybe they're not spiritual at all, but they're, uh, they feel quite fulfilled. They've got quite a bit of joy in their life. And that's a reflection of the God-given capacities we have to search out. I mean, God, God has put joy in creation. 
And so humans can discover it. They can find it in all kinds of different things. But So I want to show you how this is possible, how people find joy, but also how doing it on our own by ourselves is totally inadequate without God. How it is possible, but how it is completely still inadequate. Let me tell you about Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl uh, was a Jew who was enslaved in a Nazi death camp. And his parents were killed. His brother was killed. His wife was killed. Not only that, but he had to shovel their ashes. He was, ex- he was tortured, exposed to incredible indignities, mistreated. And one day he was lying there naked and alone. And he had an epiphany. Something occurred to him, which is what he calls, he calls it the last of, of the human freedoms. And what he discovered was it didn't matter what the Nazi guards did to his body. They could do anything to his body. They could torture him in any way. They could do absolutely anything to his body. He still had the ability to choose how he would respond to it. He had the psychological power to find a way to cope with what they were doing, what they were doing to him, how they were treating him. That was something that he was incomplete. He could choose his attitude. It's an amazing kind of psychological discovery. And he, he taught it to other people in the camp. He taught even, even some Nazi guards learned this technique from him. And so what Viktor Frankl would do is, in the midst of horrible torture, burying fellow Jews who had been murdered, having to do all this horrible stuff, he experiencing such terror, he would go into his imagination, go into his mind, and he would project in his mind he would think back to when he was a professor, when he'd give lectures to his students, something he greatly enjoyed, something he was very good at. And he would think back to those times and those days, and it would improve his mood. It would give him joy. It would help him. It would change his, the way he felt about his circumstances. Because he could, he could, in his mind, he said, they can't take this from me. This is something that I have complete control and power over. They can't take this from me. So I'm going to use my imagination to go back to those, you know, almost like going to a happy place, right? Going back to those times, and that gives me power over these circumstances. It's quite an amazing feat. I mean, this is an example of the power of the human mind. Any, and anyone can learn this, these techniques and these skills. It's, these are God-given abilities that God has given us to do. It's an amazing amazing example that, that he sets. A lot of people don't realize they can do this. I'm going to put a pin in it. I want to come back to it. I want to leave it right there. We'll, we will come back to it. But let, so that's the internal way that you can find uh, joy in life or find, find hope in, in, in certain situations. But then uh, what about externally? How do you find joy on the outside? Well, I think the, the clearest way to measure joy uh, is, is through laughter. I think joy, laughter is, is, is the sign of joy. And you, typically, you don't, you don't laugh a lot by yourself. I mean, maybe a little bit, but not, not the real hearty kind of laughing, right? Um, laughter is the, is, is the involuntary reaction to having joy, right? If, if joy gets enough, you know, builds up enough in your own heart, it has to come out. You know, it still starts as a smile, but it eventually comes out as laughter. It's involuntary. Joy, uh, laughter is contagious, Right? Hear other people laughing, you laugh. Sometimes you laugh at other people's laughs, right? That can happen too. We were recently went to see uh, the Christmas Carol, and there was a guy all the way over here, somewhere on the other side of the 
uh, of the auditorium, and he had, he had a very unique laugh. And every time he laughed, I got a kick out of it. It made me laugh. It's con- laughter is contagious. Laughter is universal to all cultures. All cultures have things they laugh about, and they share laughter. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intrinsic, instinctual gut thing that, I mean, children laugh before they even learn how to talk. It's hardwired into us by God. It's, laughter is, is the sign, the key, towards measuring and finding joy. Uh, Professor Robert Pro, Provine, I think it is, from um, the University of Maryland, he, he did some studies on, on laughter, and he discovered in, in his study, you know, that would be a fun thing to do, right? I'd like to get a grant for that. So we're going we're gonna to get people in a, a laboratory and get them to laugh and, and, and study it. He discovered that the key factor uh, that, that could trigger laughter was the presence of another person. You had to have another person. So you can't just have something amusing or a joke or something like that. It might get a chuckle, might get a smile, might get a response. But to really laugh, you have to have another person present. It's impossible any other way. I think laughter occurs 30 times more frequently in social settings than it does in solitary ones. In uh, 1926, I think it is. No, 1962. I got my numbers the wrong way around. 1962. There was a, 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 an amazing documented outbreak of contagious laughter in a girls' boarding school in uh, Tanzania. And it happened, I think it was January, uh, in, in January of that year, uh, three girls in the school, in the boarding school, got the giggles. And they, they just couldn't stop giggling, couldn't stop laughing. And it started to spread from there. So it ended up infecting uh, 95 other students. And so by, I think it was March 18th of that year, it got so bad, they had to shut the school down. They couldn't control the laughter. It was that contagious. And so in, 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 in an attempt to squelch the contagion, uh, they, they, they shut the school down and sent all the, all the students home. But instead of stopping it, they became vectors of uh, the spread of this disease. And uh, the, the epidemic continued on, spread to other schools, spread to their families. Uh, some may call it a fundemic. Uh, you know, that would be, that's what we need, is we need a fundemic. Uh, that would be great. Uh, and uh, this outbreak continued, uh, affecting uh, many schools in Central Africa. Uh, it was documented. They, they tracked it for like two and a half years. It impacted more than 1,000 people. This, this contagion of laughter that could not be controlled. Another study uh, showed that uh, women laugh 126% more than men. But some theorize that it's because the men are trying to get the jokes out of the women. They're trying to get the laughter out of the... They're trying to get the ladies to laugh. And that, I think that is a true male-female dynamic that's going on there. And some have suggested that actually the, uh, one sign to, to, to test the healthiness of a relationship is how much does the woman laugh. If she's laughing a lot, then uh, that's a sign that maybe it's a healthy relationship. Uh, I don't know about that, but you know, maybe there's some truth to that. Our family, we used to do this go- goofy thing where uh, when our kids were younger... Maybe we'll do it this afternoon, guys, when we get home. Maybe not. But uh, when my kids were young, we used to do this thing where we used to uh, lay our heads on each other's stomachs, and then you like lay in a circle on the floor. You've done this before. And you lay in a circle, your head's on. And then one person starts with a ha, and then the second person does a ha-ha, and then the third person is ha-ha-ha, and it goes on so on and so forth. And it doesn't take long. 
until you're in absolute hysterics. You, you really, you really can't, I was waiting for that. You really can't uh, do that by yourself. It's impossible to laugh like that by yourself. These, these are powerful examples, aren't they? Victor Frankl, using the power of his imagination to go back and to, 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 to overcome his horrible circumstances and to find some joy and some hope through that. And these, these girls in this boarding school getting the giggles and laughing and, and that being spread. Like these, these are amazing examples. They're, they're signs to us of how God has wired us, things that we can do. And we, you know, these are essentially, uh, these are God-given things. They're kind of like psychological hacks. You could even say you can use them in certain ways, but that doesn't make them bad. Uh, but what it means is it means they they can only get you so far. Right, laughing with other people is great. That's important. You know, choosing what your mind focuses upon. Like, you know, think on these things. Think on heavenly things. You know, I mean, the Bible says that right over and over. So, think on the right things. Like, yeah, these are great things. But uh, it, from the world's perspective, they only take you so far. They're inadequate because we have to ask ourselves, what is this psychological fortitude that we have? This ability to imagine, this ability to laugh with other people. What's it really based on? And who, who are the people we can laugh with? Who do, we, who do we feel safe enough to laugh with? What community of people can we laugh with? Because what, what if your career is not going very well? Or you don't have any achievements that you can think back to that you're happy with? Right? Victor Frankl, he, he had a very successful, fulfilling career. So he, he could think on and be proud in that. But what, what if things haven't worked out? What do, you, what do you find? What, what, what if you're a very isolated person or somebody with, with a lot of social anxiety? H- how do you find those connections? How do you overcome those challenges and actually find people that you can laugh with? The, the, the problem with, with the, these approaches that the world offers us and that, that, that people promote is that they anchor us to unstable things. So, so, so if your hope is in your achievement, well, that's unstable. If your, if your hope is in people, well, people are unstable. Any achievement you have can be robbed from you, can be taken away, can be undermined. You could doubt it. Others could doubt it. People could downgrade it. Any, um, any relationship you have, even the best person you know could let you down, in, 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 you know, whether meaning to or not meaning to. These are unstable things that we put our hope in. Well, we, we, maybe we could just delude ourselves and just imagine all kinds of things in our lives that aren't true, but I, I think that would make us crazy if we did that. They're just not robust enough, and because they don't help us actually face our suffering, they don't help us find true joy on the other side of our sorrow and our suffering. See, see Viktor Frankl, his, his approach was help, because how, how do you survive a Nazi death camp? Like with this psychological technique, it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing he was able to do that and teach other people how to do that, but, but, but his philosophy was Try to put your hope in something beyond your circumstances, bigger, a bigger meaning, a bigger reason to live, that there's some sense that could be made out of these, this circumstance. But the problem is if you lose everything if, and you don't have any kind of faith in God, what do you have to hope in? And what people didn't discover until after his death was he was actually a very religious person and he prayed every day. I think he should have told people that because I, th- I, think, I think hoping in God is the only way that you can get through anything in your life. Because you could lose everything else, but you could never lose that. Jesus puts it this way in, uh, what is it, John 16, verses 20 through 22. Jesus puts it this way. He says, you will be sorrowful. Now, that's reality. 
You will. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. See, the joy that Jesus offers us is completely different. It's robust, it's certain, it's concrete. It's, it takes into account our sorrow. It doesn't trick us. It doesn't just teach us a technique that says, here's how you cope in this moment. There's something much richer about it, something that's relational about it. And instead of running from our sorrow or pretending we don't have it or just distracting ourselves, we, we, we've got to learn to, we bring our sorrow to Him. And I, it's easier said than done. I mean, I, I, in my pain, it's easy to distract myself. Right? I'm just going to get busy, then I don't have to think about my pain, or I'm just going to scroll through amusing, goofy reels of stuff just to distract myself from, from the pain. I mean, there, there are times of that, but, but then when I learn to really surrender, I learn to sit and surrender it to God. That's when, when maybe nothing changes on the outside, but everything changes on the inside because it's him, because there's nothing more stable than, than Christ. And all other human attempts to find joy are based in human ability and human effort, right? And it's tempting even for spiritual people or religious people to look at our lives as, as a series of checklists. If I, well, if I do these things, then my life will work out. Or if I, if, I, if, I, if I have these things in my life, I've checked these religious boxes, I do this, I do this, I do this, well, then, then I have the outcomes I want. I get the kind of job I want, have the kind of income I want, have the kind of relationships I want, have the kind of, I feel good about my life and about myself because I'm checking these religious boxes off and that makes me happy. And that, but that's not what Jesus says. In these verses we read, Jesus says, when you see me, see, that's when you'll rejoice. You will have sorrow. And you know what? It's okay to be sorrowful. If you're in a season of grief and sadness, that's what you're supposed to experience in that time, but not forever. When you see Jesus, it's when you see Jesus. That's when we rejoice. And Jesus can show up at any time. It's amazing. This is, this is the good news. This is the good news that was announced to these shepherds. Why, why Christmas is so important, such an important time of year to bring us back to the sense of joy the good news of, 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 you know, that's what gospel means, right? It means good news. And there's something that, that I think Christians, we just don't understand about good news. Uh, news is something that you hear about that happens somewhere else. The reason it's news to you is because you weren't there. You didn't have anything to do with it. And somebody is giving you a report. They're, they're coming to you and say, did you hear about what happened? I haven't heard the news. I didn't know. Tell me this news. A lot of news is bad news, right? But that's why it's wonderful being a Christian, because it's all about good news. It's all about the greatest news. You see, from a religious mindset, and the human brain does this a lot, we, we, we try to save ourselves. Our salvation, our idea of knowing God, is based on our effort, what we can do. But that would, then you wouldn't need news, because then you would know about it. It would be news to other people that you did something. But it's not, the, the gospel is news, 
which means it's somebody else doing something else on your behalf, and you hear about it after it's already happened. It means we add nothing to our salvation. We can contribute no good works, no amount of faith, no amount of repentance in terms of turning from sin and trying to clean our lives up. You can't do enough of it for God to accept you. The only way it happens is in something that already happened that is then reported to you. A messenger shows shows up. Somebody delivers a letter. A report comes through. A news anchor is blasting something out through the airwaves. There is good news of great joy. And it's it's not just good news. It's joyful news that somebody did something for you that will save you forever. And nothing you can do can ever add to it. That is joy. There is no joy like it. It is the only stable source, a foundation that you can draw from, that you can stand on, that you can count on, to never be taken from you, to never be stolen from you. The most important relationship that we need is with God. We need relationships with other people. It's not good for man to be alone. God blesses us with that. But even God uses our human relationships to point us and keep pushing us back to our relationship with Him because the the critical factor to having joy and to actually laughing is the presence of another person. And in God, you don't just have the presence, you always have the presence of another person, you have the, the presence of the most joyful person. You know, the Bible has some humor in it. Uh, it's a serious book, too, and there's some crazy, uh, st- there's some, definitely some crazy stuff in there as well. But there's some funny stuff in there as well. Uh, Elijah the prophet, you know, if you, I don't know if you know this story or not in the Old Testament, Elijah the prophet, he uh, is, is, is mocking the false prophets of Baal. They're slashing their arms up, cutting themselves, worshiping their false god, trying to call down fire from heaven. Nothing's happening, and he's like mocking them, talking to them, shouting at them messing with their minds, gaslighting them in some way, different way. I don't know, he's doing something to them, and he's like, maybe your God's off, you know, relieving himself on the toilet. Pretty hilarious stuff. Maybe, he's, maybe it's a number two he's taking so long. You know, I don't know. I'm embellishing this a little bit, but you get, you get the point. The book of, the book of uh, Jonah is a book of satire. Takes a little bit more sophistication to get into the satire of Jonah. The book of at the end of Job, uh, there's some sarcasm. God directly used sarcasm. I've been told off before for being sarcastic, but you know what? It's godly. Uh, at the end of Job, you know, God says to I'm paraphrasing here, but God says to Job, He says, "Well, since you were there at the beginning of everything, since you know, why don't you tell me the answer?" Job's all complaining and like, "Whoa, my life, my poor little life." And, uh, which it was bad, you know, don't blame me for that. But uh, God's like, well, do you, you know, since you know everything, since you were there, why don't you tell me? You know, man, love that sarcasm, perfect timing for it. Uh, the other funny one is uh, uh, John, the Apostle John. He thought that it was important enough that when they, when they learned the good news that Jesus had resurrected and they ran to the grave, he thought it was important enough to add the, the detail that he could run faster than Peter. Uh, that's such a guy thing to do. That's such a guy thing. I can run faster than the Apostle Peter. What's even more hilarious about that is at the end of the Gospel of John, it says, he says, you know, Jesus did so many things. All these wonderful things he taught and said that the world couldn't contain the amount of books that were, you know, for all the different things Jesus did. So it's like, okay, John, what you're telling us is there's like extra parables and miracles and stuff that you could have put in but you thought it was important enough to put in the running thing <laughs> instead. 
He's going to have to answer for that one when we're in heaven. The Bible is, uh, yeah, it's a book of joy. You know, uh, God's encouraging his people to have festivals. The Bible's full of festivals and celebrations and songs and music and beauty. But even more than all that, it's full of the, the, the most joyful person, the person of joy. And so what we should do is we should use our imaginations, like, like Viktor Frankl, we should use our imaginations to think on Christ, the most stable source of joy. And as a church, and, and laugh with each other and continue. I think, I think as a church, you know, we're a little goofy. And that's probably because I'm a little bit of a goofy person. Uh, but I don't mind that. I've actually, uh, somebody did criticize me once. They said, you know, Matt, your church is a little silly, a little goofy. I wear that as a badge of honor. I would rather have a little bit of goofy fun and joy than be miserable and serious all the time. I mean, the life, life is hard enough. You know, like, can't we just have a little bit of fun sometimes? Let's, let's never stop laughing together as a church. Let's, let's have a rich sense of, I mean, there's going to be times of sorrow. We know that. Our family's been through all kind of hardship and sorrow. And there are times, you, you, you know, you're not going to laugh. You're not going to feel that joy. You're not going to feel, of course, of course. But through it, as you see Jesus, that joy comes. Jesus is the master of joy. I mean, he turned water into wine. That had to be the best wedding ever to be at. Right? To drink too much of the wine that Jesus makes, you're like, I'm actually getting drunk and it's okay because it's Jesus' wine. How does that work? I don't know. It's a mystery. I don't know how that works. Um, on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out, right? Um, the people were, 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 were <laughs> worshiping, speaking other languages, praying, and they got accused of being drunk. I mean, that's a lot of joy. That's a lot of joy, right? The Bible's been telling us this for years. Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs chapter 17, tells us this. A joyful heart is good medicine. A joyful heart is good medicine. Now, that's not medicine like, uh, like psychological medicine. That actually means for your body. Because, uh, so know this. So, so the more anxiety we have, the more melancholy we are, uh, if you're more neurotic as a person, there is a... Studies have shown this. There is, you have more physical ailments. You have more sicknesses, more trouble. Because uh, your mood affects your body. You have more, you're just more stressed. You're more tense. You're more tight. And so um, your emotions do affect your body. I'm not saying that if you uh, start laughing a lot more and are happy a lot more, it's going like, to ward off cancer or anything like that. I don't know. Maybe. I'm not making any outrageous claims. Talk to your doctor. All right. I don't want to get sued or anything. But I'm, what I'm saying is the Bible is telling us that a joyful heart is good medicine. That actually, you're, you're going to feel healthier in your life with happier emotions. Those things totally go together, together. So if we're struggling to find joy in God, let's put our minds on the things of Christ, the joy of Christ. Let's learn to laugh, learn to giggle with each other, and, 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 and not worry about that. Not worry about, is this appropriate? Is this okay? God is a God of joy. Now, what happened with our friend, comedian friend, Shonda Pierce, whose husband suffered this terrible stroke and was in emergency surgery. Well, Shonda clung to him and she thought to herself, you know, this is like he's at death's door here and, and, and this will be, this finally will be the wake-up call. This will be, this is what happens to people, right? Where they're, they're faced with their own demise. This is the thing that will scare him so much that, that, that he won't drink again and we'll, we'll have our happily ever after. Well, I think it was July 22nd, 2014, he had another stroke in the hospital and died. 
and Shonda's life shattered. And she said that she would give up her entire career. If she could go back, she would give everything up. That the price that they paid and the, the toll that their family took through all the struggles and what they had laid down to build this career, she says it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. She already knew grief. I mean, from her childhood, her sisters dying, her parents getting divorced, rough, dysfunctional family. And here was grief again, knocking at the door. A few months after his death, she made the surprising decision to go back on tour. I mean, think about it. You know, if you go through a bereavement, like at some point you have to go back to work. And this is her job. She's going back to work. She couldn't think of anything else to do. What do, what do I do? You know? So she went back on tour. But she's telling jokes. And even though she regretted how she built her career, and regretted the sacrifices they made for their family to build it, even though she looked back on that, she could see that God was doing something. That God was beginning to redeem it. That God was beginning to work through it in a different new way. That as she went back on tour, she was very honest, very raw, telling her, her audiences, I just recently lost my husband. It's one of the most painful things. Of all the other things I've been through, it's one of the most painful things. She was very raw and very honest, very open about it. She said that she needed the medicine of people's laughter. She built up very strong bonds with her audiences over the years. She'd had a 20-year-long, I think over 20-year-long career, maybe more. And she was leaning on those bonds, that, those, those connections, that, that love from people, all different places that she would travel around and different venues and, and churches that she would travel to, the support that she got and the laughter that she heard. It, it made the pain somewhat bearable, she says. And it was probably God's gift of humor to her that actually probably helped her from going over the edge, probably stopped her from going over the edge herself. She said it took three years after her husband's death until the, the deep ache of grief finally began to subside. Began to, after three years, it began to subside. And then in a 2017 documentary about this time in her life, she was very honest. And she said that when she was younger, she said, you know, I was terrified of being alone. The idea of uh, going, going back to an empty house, getting into an empty bed, she said, that just sounds like the worst thing in the world. Like, why would anybody want that? I can't imagine that. But she now says for the first time in her life, she trusts that God has her exactly where he wants her and that he's her strength. Through this time, she started to try to build a more robust social life, something she'd always struggled with. With her sisters dying when she was younger, it kind of stunted her ability to build friendships with people. And so now, much older woman, having gone through all this loss and tragedy in her life, she's like, I've I got to figure out this friendship thing, the social life thing. And so she clung to friends in a new way, in a deeper way than she ever had before she needed them, more than she'd ever had before. And with the estrangement from her daughter, what she did was she then, there was a, a single mother in her church that she befriended. And started to be a kind of a grandmother to this child and started to fulfill some of that, that 
the desire to be a grandmother through that, that relationship and form the special bond with this single mom in her church. And she says that you know, Christian counseling helped a lot. She, for her clinical depression, she takes medication. She says that helps a lot. These friendships have helped a lot. But she said the thing that's helped her the most is Scripture. Time and again, coming back to Scripture. She's coming back to God's Word, coming back to God's Word. And she quotes from Romans. She says, you know, the verse in Romans where it says that God works all things together for the good, for the good of those who love Him. And her, her, I've been watching some of her comedy on, on YouTube, and it's kind of like a big giant group therapy session that a lot of women who, rec- who relate to her story, who have lost their husbands, lost, lost other loved ones in grief, they'll, they'll go to her shows and they'll, they'll laugh together and they'll cry together and they'll get a bit of healing together. Her story is redeeming other people's stories. And she sees the good that's coming out of all the tragedy. And she says the only way to survive the pain of this life is to serve Christ. There's no other way. And that as we serve Christ, we learn to cling to the ones that we love. The, the secret in the Christian life to joy is to give. It's not really a secret, but it's something we forget is to give. The, the, the true avenue to joy is to give. As Shonda gives laughter and gives joy to people, God is giving her joy in a deeper way. God is the most joyful person who could ever exist because he gave the greatest gift that could ever be given. He gave the gift of Christmas. God the Father sent his son as a missionary to earth, as a sacrifice to die in our place. And so because God gave up the greatest thing that he had, which was the closest relationship he had, he is therefore the most joyful person. Because joy is found in sacrifice. Joy is found in giving, in laying down. And that's what Shonda has learned. That's what Jesus showed on the cross. And that's what we experience as Christians as we receive the gift and as we learn to give. We're going to sing to Jesus, find our greatest joy in Him and our hope in Him. But for those of us who already believe, let's, let's get rid of the religious mentality of I've just got to check the right boxes to do the right thing to then be like, oh, I'm okay with God or I'm a good person or I've got it all figured out. Instead, it's learning to surrender. Instead of striving, it's surrendering. I lay down all the things in my life to trust in Jesus.